I have some symbolisms that I will pass out tonight without comment on them. We, uh, this is our sixth week, and so we need to wrap it up tonight, and so we're going to have to pick them up and put them down. Stay light. I, uh, <laughs> I'm going to try to cover some ground tonight. The uh, material is pretty extensive, but I think we'll be able to hit some high spots and give you some background. I understand uh, Pastor Mark is going to be doing a series on end times uh, from the book of Matthew. We talked about Matthew just a little bit last week, and uh, June was telling me that he's announced a series on end times, so that'll blend in with what we are have been doing. I wished he had done it from Daniel, and then I could have skipped that tonight. We could have moved on, but I guess we better look at Daniel tonight and uh, get some background from the Old Testament uh, as to the end times that we're dealing with. And to do that, we'll need to go to Daniel chapter 9, and verse 24 will be our point of attack. Let me just lay a little background for that before we jump in. Israel was out of the land when Daniel receives his prophecy. He was among those that had gone into the Babylonian captivity, also referred to as the Chaldean captivity. And Israel was out of the land because they had not been faithful to God's instruction for them to lay aside every seventh year as a sabbatical year and they had allowed 490 years to go by without giving God every seventh year and so God took the 70 years that they owed him uh, by taking them out of the land for that 70 year period. During that time that Daniel and three other prominent uh, ones of that day, uh, we know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I like to have fun preaching on the Hebrew children in the fire furnace to preach Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah. And everybody thinks you've really lost your place, you know, and you've got usually a line of four or five at the door to, to tell you, Preacher, you sure blew it this morning, you got the wrong guys in the furnace. Uh, because we know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which was their Chaldean appointed names. Uh, Daniel identifies them uh, as Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah, but he uses their names Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego while they are in the fiery furnace. Uh, Daniel's Chaldean appointed name was Belteshazzar, but he doesn't refer to himself much. He lets us know that that's the name they hung on him, but he doesn't use it for himself. But I find it interesting he uses the name they hung on the other three uh, for them. And... Uh, they are prominent then in the story of, or in the, in the book of Daniel, and in the events of the Chaldean Empire. But Daniel, along with the three others, uh, had found favor in the eyes of those that were appointed to select out from among these captives some men uh, that could be useful uh, to the kingdom. And, of course, in 
our childhood, if we were in church in our childhood, we learned about Daniel and the prominent thing about being in the lion's den and then his buddies uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. But Daniel gives us some insight into the events that are going to occur in the last time. And God never reckons time for Israel when they're out of their own land, when they're under what we call the fifth cycle of discipline. God, in the book of Deuteronomy, told the Jews when they went to the land that if they were unfaithful to him, he was going to bring uh, some discipline upon them. If they did not respond to that, he would increase or intensify that discipline and bring a second degree or level of discipline upon them. If they still did not respond, he would bring a third level of discipline upon them. If they did not respond then, a fourth level of discipline. And if they didn't respond then, he would put them under the fifth cycle of discipline, which was removal from the land. Uh, that happened in the Babylonian captivity. They were not faithful to God. He had brought discipline upon discipline upon them in four different cycles. And finally, under Nebuchadnezzar, he took them out of the land. It also occurred at the end of the next 490 years, actually 403 years, uh, when Titus, emperor of Rome, took them out of the land, destroyed Jerusalem, and dispersed the people. And as far as God's order is uh, and recognition is, they are still under that fifth cycle of discipline, uh, even though a handful of Zionists have gone back to uh, Jerusalem and to Israel and have reestablished themselves. And we've been talking a little bit about uh, them in our preliminary uh, conversation this evening. But there are more Jews that live in the United States than live in Israel, yet that return has not yet come. Uh, because they're still under the fifth cycle of discipline and will be until the Lord uh, himself returns and calls them back. There will always be a group there uh, that will set the stage for the events of tribulation when uh, there will be a greater influx during that period of time. So Daniel's writing when they're out of the land. And in the ninth chapter, beginning with verse 24, he speaks about seven weeks in God's prophetic program for Israel. Now, the word weeks, as it's used in this passage, literally means from the Hebrew sevens. Seventy sevens. And should be translated as seventy times seven, or four hundred and ninety years. Each one of the weeks representing a period of seven years. And in the Hebrew, he, they didn't use the word weeks, they used the word sevens, so seventy-sevens, uh, as he breaks the period of time down. Uh, there's uh, some further use of that same type of terminology in the book of Numbers, chapter 14, uh, verse 34, and in Ezekiel, chapter 4, verse 6. This period of 70 weeks, and we commented on this earlier, is divided into three sections of time. Daniel 9.25 breaks down uh, those sections of time. We're going to look at this passage in a few moments, but I just want to lay a little background. Uh, the first seven uh, weeks, or 49 years, were to be troublous times. The period of time that Artaxerxes issued a decree, and that decree came in 445 B.C., 
which he issued the decree to restore and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 2 verses 1 through 8 uh, record that. And so the time that he issued that decree until the building of the walls were completed and the temple was completed and the city was secure, there was a time in which they were being uh, constantly harassed and invaded by uh, marauding uh, hill people that came down and uh, it was a period of 49 years of troublous times. 62 weeks or 62 sevens 434 years later from the time of the completion and securing of the city till the cross in 30 AD was that second period of time and it was to be at a point of 483 years that the Messiah was to be killed. And by the way archaeologists have discovered documents that show that that actually occurred to the very day. Artaxerxes signed the decree on the 14th day of the month of Abib in 445 BC and in 30 AD uh, 483 years to the day we find a fulfillment of that. It's on the 14th day of the month of Abib in 30 AD that Christ was crucified on the cross. And uh, I'll just throw it out for, for what it's worth to you in way of investigation. I usually say job security when I'm uh, throwing out something that I don't plan to deal with that day and, and got to keep me on, you know, so I can... Uh, can document it later, but that not being the case here, uh, I teach that the crucifixion occurred on Wednesday, not on Friday. And uh, it was Good Wednesday yesterday, not Good Friday coming up. The only sign that was given uh, to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah was the sign of the prophet Jonah. And the sign of the prophet Jonah was as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Even so, Jesus said, must the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. And there's no way you can get that from Friday evening to Sunday morning that you can have Jesus in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. Uh, it flies in the face of tradition to try to change that. And uh, I have had some uh, good Wednesday services uh, on a local level that I've preached at every good Friday service that I've been invited to preach at. Uh, many opportunities to preach, you know and uh, haven't messed up uh, their thinking by, by introducing that concept. But you might uh, explore that. You may have been exposed to it in the past. I'm certainly uh, not alone in holding that position. Uh, but uh, everything harmonizes when you look at it in that perspective. That make it four nights. No, he, he was in the grave on Wednesday night and on Thursday night and on Friday night and any time after sundown on Saturday night he could have come out of the grave by Gentile, by Jewish time remember the day Sunday started at 6 o'clock in the evening by Jewish time and so if we count it by Jewish time he could have been out of the grave uh, any time after 6 o'clock we go by time any time after midnight we do not know what time but we know that he didn't spend the entire night in as it began to dawn, the women were there uh, at the grave, and the grave was already open, and he was gone. So, uh, we the the only way you can get the three days and and a total of three nights, uh, and if you want to make it literal seventy-two hours, then it had to be by six o'clock, uh, which was the first hour of Sunday <coughs> by Jewish time. But 
But he's after three days and three nights that he would uh, be manifest. So uh, that'd give you something to explore sometime when you just get bored and <laughs> looking for something to do. <clears throat> the establishment of Friday was done by the Roman Catholics when, when in their missionary enterprise they found the people worshiping the god Odin and his the sacred day was Friday. And so they set up Friday as the day of crucifixion and that's when it was really began to be observed. Uh, the common thing that we follow is the day after the crucifixion was Sabbath day. Well, everybody knows the Sabbath began at sundown on Friday, and so that had to be Saturday, except all four of the Gospels tell us it was not just any Sabbath, it was a high Sabbath. And the Gospel of John tells us it was the Sabbath of Passover. All the feast days, the feast days were Sabbath days. And so there was the Sabbath of Passover that occurred on Thursday of that week. And Christ was slain at the appointed hour that the Passover lambs were to be slain, which was between 3 o'clock and 5 o'clock on the 14th day of the month of Abib. At 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the ninth hour, he cried out, It is finished, and he gave up the ghost. So to the very hour in which the Paschal lambs were to be slain, he, the Lamb of God, fulfilled that. And uh, that was, in 30 AD, that was on the 14th, that was on Wednesday. Thursday was Passover, and then Friday uh, was an open day. Then Saturday was again uh, the weekly Sabbath. And if you read in the uh, big text of Matthew, chapter 28, verse 1, in English it says, and Sabbath being passed. That's not what the, Greek, what the Greek text says. The Greek text says, in the end of the Sabbaths, plural, as it began to dawn toward one of the Sabbaths, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. The Sabbath of Thursday, uh, Passover, the Sabbath that was the weekly Sabbath of Saturday, and as it began to dawn toward another Sabbath, because Sunday that week was the Feast of First Fruits, and that was also a Sabbath. It was not a Sabbath in which they had to cease from labor, but it was a, a Sabbath in which they went out in the field and, and took the sheaves of wheat, the first two sheaves of wheat, and brought them in and made an offering of them to God. Also, when you check out the Gospel uh, of Luke and of Mark, you find a conflict uh, without there being the, the representation of the two Sabbaths that week because uh, one gospel tells us that the women rested on the Sabbath and then went to the market and bought ointments to anoint the of Jesus. The other gospel writer tells us that the women prepared the ointments and rested on the Sabbath before going to anoint the body of Jesus. They didn't, one of them didn't make a mistake. One of them simply says they rested on the Sabbath of Passover and then they went and bought the ointments. They prepared them and they rested on the weekly Sabbath and then they went to anoint the body of Jesus. And so it all harmonizes when you begin to put it in that. But I'm not going to get into that tonight. I didn't intend to get into that. Uh, just throw it out before you look at it. At the very day, though, if you don't, if you don't follow that through and see that, then Jesus didn't die on the exact day and that's no biggie because Daniel didn't say he would die on the exact day but when you follow that out and you find that to be true then it really uh, gets exciting to see that the very day that that 483 years was fulfilled the Messiah was crucified the um, third time in Daniel then was a period of one week called Jacob's Trouble or the 70th week of Israel, a number of different terms that are attached to it. 
period of seven years, and it's that seven years that we're identifying as the tribulation. Now, the, the 49 years and the 434 years followed one right on the other, but the uh, seventh, the, the other seven years did not because Israel was cut off and the church was grafted in, and they were then scattered uh, at the end of that generation. God, God in his grace had given the Jews an entire generation, 40-year period of warning concerning their dispersal. Isaiah, in chapter 28, had forewarned that they were going to be dispersed if they did not turn back to God. And the sign of their dispersal was that they would be evangelized in other languages with stammering speech and with guttural languages. And in, on the day of Pentecost in 30 AD, when the Holy Spirit came to indwell, they began to speak tongues. And the tongues were assigned to the Jews. They were stammering speech and guttural languages the Jews were evangelized in for a period of 40 years. At the end of the 40-year period, they were dispersed. So for an entire generation, they were exposed to the sign that Isaiah had prophesied. Now Isaiah prophesied two signs. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and then the sign of tongues. And tongues was a legitimate gift and a valid gift, a sign gift to the Jews until 70 A.D. In 70 A.D., when the Jews were scattered, tongues ceased of themselves. Now, I know that they've been revived, uh, at least has been an attempt to revive uh, tongues, but it was always assigned to the unbelieving Jew, and there's no need for the sign after that. So for a 40-year period of time, from 30 A.D. to 70 A.D., God uh, gave them warning of the dispersal, and then that dispersal became a reality. They were evangelized in uh, guttural languages, languages that were unknown. And on the day of Pentecost, when these began to speak, if you read that out in the second chapter of Acts, uh, the people marveled that heard them speak because they said, Are not all these that speak Galileans? How is it that we hear every man in our own native tongue wherein we were born? And there's some of the places where they were from. And uh, I mentioned to you earlier that when Alexander the Great conquered the world, that he established an international language, the Koine Greek in which the New Testament was written. But remember the second thing that he did was to take a Jew over every nation that he conquered, made him sign a treaty and made him learn his language, and then he put a Jew over them to administer them because he knew that he discovered Jews were tremendous administrators. And so when Jesus came some 500 years later, the Romans were empowered. The Greeks had failed by the way, fell by the wayside but these Jews were still scattered in these various places, but they always came back to Jerusalem three times a year for the observance of the feasts. And they were there on the day of Pentecost. And they took the gospel back that week to their own native places so that all the, the, the gospel was disseminated uh, immediately through that tool that God used Alexander the Great developed. Uh, they marveled that they were hearing all these speak because they were Galileans, because Galileans only spoke one language. And that was Aramaic. And they didn't do a very good job of it. Now, my wife's an Okie, and so I can say this. But they spoke like the Okies. 
you know, grapes of wrath. They ain't, they, it was ain't, and they seen it and noted it. When it came to handling the Aramaic, they did, they were not fluent with it. And my dad was an Okie too, that's why I noted, it, you know. The, uh, the, there was one disciple that was a Judean. And Judeans were trilingual, they spoke three languages. And that disciple was Judas. And he was not alive on the day of Pentecost. He had uh, absconded with the, with the funds, but at least it had the decency to commit suicide and get his name off the road. You know. But he was the only Judean among them. All the others were Galileans, and, and they just couldn't believe all these Galileans were speaking very fluently the languages from where they had, had originated and where their homes were. And in those languages, they were hearing the wonderful works of God. So they were cut off, and they were warned for 40 years they were going to be, and they were cut off and dispersed. The church had been grafted in at the cross on the day of Pentecost and warned the Jews for 40 years. <clears throat> they did not heed the warning, and so the seven years are yet coming to the Jews. And that's the tribulational period, and that's what we call Daniel's 70th week. Let's look at that then in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. <clears throat> oh, no wonder that didn't look right. It was five. Let me get back to nine. Seventy weeks are Herman. Literally 77s are determined upon thy people and upon the holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, and to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and the prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Seventy sevens are determined. Seventy times seven, four hundred and ninety years. The term are determined is from the Hebrew means are set aside. They had had 490 before this prophecy, before the Babylonian captivity, but they had been unfaithful. And so God says, now I'm going to give you another 490 years before I'm going to finalize things. The uh, statement then are determined literally uh, have been set aside. Upon thy people refers to Israel and upon the holy city, of course, to Jerusalem. Now there were six things that are listed that were to be accomplished in the 490 years and uh, that are to be concluded by the end of the Jewish age or by the second advent of Christ. First is identified to finish the transgression. To finish the transgression. Now since the second advent is going to end their fifth cycle of discipline and result in their being brought back to the land, uh, it will result in the removal of the sins which led them into disobedience and resulted in the fifth cycle of discipline. So from the second advent on, from the time that Christ lands on the top of the Mount of Olives in his return, the Jews will never again be under the fifth cycle of discipline. And Leviticus chapter 26, verses 27 through 29, lay the background for this fifth cycle of discipline. 
The second thing is to make an end of sins. And uh, at the second advent, we will have the baptism of fire for the Jews. Fire, remember, is symbolic of judgment. And so it will be the baptism of judgment for the Jews so that that will be finalized. No longer will Jews uh, uh, be involved in sinning. And then to make reconciliation for iniquity. And the reason they won't be involved, they're going to be regenerated. They're going to receive their regenerated bodies. To make a reconciliation for iniquity, that will be then the regathering of the Jews at the second advent. The fourth thing is to bring in everlasting righteousness. The second advent will bring in all those that have been regenerated, and there will be a resurrection at the second advent of the Old Testament believers and of the tribulational saints. Uh, Daniel chapter 12 verse 1 says to seal up the vision and prophecy which will complete the Jewish age at the second advent. And then to anoint the most holy. And this refers to the holy of holies in the temple. Jesus Christ will, will dedicate a millennial temple. There is going to be a millennial temple during the thousand year reign of Christ, a temple and Christ himself will dedicate it personally. The last half of the book of Ezekiel describes this dedication ceremony and the millennial operation of the temple when Christ comes back to earth. I've, I've had trouble with that for years and years uh, in that animal sacrifice is going to be resumed during the millennium. And uh, it, it's difficult to, to put that in perspective uh, when we see that ending at the cross and being fulfilled with the Messiah, animal sacrifice was a teaching about the Messiah. But it is going to be during the millennium a memorial. What the Lord's Supper is to us, the millennial ritual is going to be for the Jews uh, and the world during the millennial reign of Christ. In Daniel chapter uh, 9 verse 25 then it says know therefore and understand that, the go- that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times and after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off but not off and the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be a flood, uh, with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. And he says, No, therefore, because I have appointed these things that are to be done, and there's a period of 490 years that they're to be done, with that in view, uh, I want you to understand the, the, how it's going to happen. And he said, the commandment, and the commandment is recorded for us in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, the commandment to uh, restore and build Jerusalem. It was issued in 445 B.C. by Artaxerxes and uh, was issued on the 14th day of the month of Abia. Unto Messiah the Prince, that's Jesus Christ, shall be seven weeks three score and two weeks. Seven times seven, 49 years. Then 62 weeks times seven, 434 years. Uh, a total of 69 weeks 
times 7 would be 483 years that this was going to take place. The first was troublous times, and so the first 49 years uh, was troublous times, and all we need to do is read the book of Nehemiah and uh, see the tremendous opposition and problems that occurred during that time, especially in Nehemiah chapters 2 through 6. He said, after three score and two weeks, 433 years plus the 49 years of troublous times, making a total of 483 years, shall Messiah be cut off. The death of the Lord Jesus Christ then, being prophesied here, the term cut off, an idiom for being killed, 483 years of the prophecy goes right up to the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, and as I've said, to the very day, the 14th day of the month of Abia. His being cut off or being killed was not for himself. He's not dying for himself, Daniel said, but he's going to die for each of us. Then he refers to the people of the prince. This is a different prince. He's talking about the Romans. And a prince that shall come, a Roman that is going to come and destroy the city and the sanctuary. And that occurred under Titus, the Roman Titus, in 70 A.D. And he says, The end thereof shall be with a flood. And throughout the book of Revelation and the books of prophecy, we find flood being used, when it's used symbolically, it's used of a flood of people, of a host of people. In Revelation 12, 15, it's used that way. Uh, again, uh, in the Old Testament, Assyria was pictured uh, as an overflowing scourge of a flood into uh, the land. And... Uh, so it is used here as well. So flood being used here uh, of Israel being conquered by the Assyrians uh, in Isaiah 28.2 and with a flood here refers to the conquering of Jerusalem in 70 AD by Titus and the flood of Romans as they wiped out the city. Then we get into the 27th verse. He says, And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even unto the consumption. And that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. So now we jump to the seven last years, the last week. And he, the dictator of the revived Roman Empire, another Roman now, identified in Revelation as a prince as well, is being introduced. And this will be the, uh, the one who's confirming the covenant uh, is the dictator of Israel, the false prophet. The covenant, uh, they, will be, they will have resumed sacrifice during the tribulation. And uh, with many is literally with the Jews. Uh, for one week or seven years of tribulation. In the midst of the week, in the middle of the tribulation, uh, he, being the dictator of uh, Palestine, uh, shall cause the sacrifices of the uh, temple to cease. So for the first three and a half years, during the tribulation, they're going to offer sacrifice, animal sacrifice again in the temple. This is not the millennial temple. This is the rebuilt temple in the present Jerusalem. We've already commented that the temple uh, plans have already been drawn up. The temple furnishings have been prepared. Uh, the victuals, the knives, the 
uh, pots and, and instruments that they need for sacrifice already been made and the corner block has already been cut, is on a truck, ready to be set, uh, and we could see that occur uh, at any time. Their rebuilding of the temple and the resumption of sacrifices, though we do not need to see it before the rapture occurs. That could very quickly be put together after the rapture uh, in the first three and a half years and the resumption of sacrifices. But at the three and a half year period, the dictator of Israel along with the dictator of the divine Roman Empire, having established this alliance, the dictator of Israel will stop the sacrifices. And it says for the overspreading of abominations, and that's the protection from the dictator of the revived Roman Empire because of the, the alliance. Remember, it's going to be a tremendous time of anti-Semitism when, when people are going to be trying again uh, to destroy the Jews, and so the dictator of Israel is going to establish this alliance with the dictator of the revived Roman Empire to protect it. And as a result, we will have the, the abomination of desolation set up in the middle of the temple, uh, which we looked at very briefly last week. Uh, the statue of the dictator of the revived Roman Empire that will be given life by a demonic power and be able to perform miracles. And this will follow through, this, this will occur until the consummation, the end of the tribulation. And that uh, which is determined, so it has already been set, the time has already been set, uh, shall be poured upon the desolate. Uh, the Jewish dictator will receive his just end at the end of the tribulation. Matter of fact, the, the dictator of the revived Roman Empire and the dictator of Israel uh, get thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone a thousand years before Satan gets thrown in. Uh, Satan is going to be bound in the bottomless pit when Christ returns, but the dictator of, of Israel uh, and the dictator of the revived Roman Empire are going to be thrown in to the lake of fire and brimstone at the second advent of Christ. So Daniel introduces then that seven-year period and, uh, and talks about the intensity of uh, very briefly that's going to occur and you have to take the last uh, part of the tribulation as it's revealed then by uh, the Lord Jesus Christ through John in Revelation to fit it together. Let's look at some of the things then that are going to uh, occur there uh, and the first thing we need to look at is the last three sealed judgments are going to uh, occur during the last three and a half years. Remember we said the, the first four of the sealed judgments would occur in the first half of the tribulation. So the fifth seal, the sixth seal, and the seventh seal, and that's going back in our thinking now to the seven seal scroll book. And in the outline uh, of, the, of Revelation and the panorama of the tribulation that you have, uh, you'll see uh, this occurring, the, the fulfillment of the last three seals. The fifth seal is recorded in Revelation 6, 9 through 11, and it's the martyrdom of tribulation of believers. We looked last week at the instruction to the believers in Judea to flee to the mountains of Edom and Moab where God will hide them. And if they do not flee, then there's tremendous martyrdom. And there is going to be tremendous martyrdom that's going to occur as a result of the sixth, the fifth seal. The sixth seal is recorded in Revelation 6, 12 through 13, 
and its unusual natural and celestial disturbances, and there are two sources of national catastrophe. The activity of certain divine laws of unusual weather conditions, and then in addition to that, floods and earthquakes are going to occur. In Revelation 7, then, uh, occurs before we move to the seventh seal, and Revelation 7 deals with the evangelism of the 144,000 and the others that are going to follow. Before we get to the seventh seal that is found in Revelation 8.1, out of the seventh seal come the seven trumpet judgments, which are so terrifying you may remember that there's a, sp- a space of silence in heaven as John receives this revelation, uh, a space of silence for a half hour as it is described there. Also, we have then the evangelism occurring by the uh, 144,000 and during the last three and a half years by the two special evangelists that we looked at last time, Moses and Elijah. And then even by evangelistic angels that are going to come and see that the entire world is evangelized during that last three and a half year period of time. Also during the last three and a half year of the tribulation, a period that we call the Great Tribulation, we have the last three trumpet judgments. And they are judgments against people. And the last three trumpet judgments, the fifth trumpet judgment, the sixth trumpet judgment, and the third trumpet judgment are called woes. The first woe speaks of torture that does not result in death, but they beg for death, though it does not come. And that is going to come from the bound angels that are in the abyss or the bottomless pit or a place described as Tartarus. And their description is given in chapter 9, verses 1 through 12 uh, of the book of Revelation. And they are described, uh, they're, they're angels. We define them before as being the angels that, in, that, that cohabited uh, with earth women uh, in the time of Noah and sought to infiltrate the human race with angelic life so that Christ could not come in pure humanity and overcome Satan. They were bound in Tartarus or the bottomless pit. When they are released, they are going to wreak havoc. The description that's given is that they're going to be like locusts, and yet they're going to resemble horses. Their tail is going to be like the tail of a scorpion, and they're going to be able to inflict tremendous pain upon people. So that's going to occur as we move into the last three and a half years of tribulation. The sixth trumpet judgment is recorded in chapter 9, verses 13 through 21 of Revelation. It's the second woe and uh, they are going to be tortured with death at that point. The purpose is to judge and destroy those that are guilty of killing the believers in the tribulation. It's a, an answer to the prayer of the tribulational martyrs uh, that we heard back in the fourth chapter of Revelation. There are going to be four super angels from the underworld under the command of Satan that are going to lead an army made up of 200 million angels. One-third of the human race is going to be destroyed. They're going to be destroyed by fire. They're going to be destroyed by smoke, by uh, the suffocation. And they're going to be destroyed by brimstone, sulfur, uh, as it is going to be released among them. One-third of humanity 
will be destroyed. Now, one-third of humanity was destroyed in the first half of the tribulation. So one-third, the remaining two-thirds is going to be destroyed at this particular point. Then, that's dealt with in the ninth chapter. Remember in the tenth chapter and the eleventh chapter, at least to the fourteenth verse of the eleventh chapter, we had a parenthesis of going back and, and looking at what was given in the first nine chapters uh, and looking at some personalities that are going to be involved in that. And I refer you to your outline of the book of Revelation for that. Then when we get to the eleventh chapter, verse 15, we get to the third woe, the seventh trumpet judgment. And it is identified as the baptism of fire. There will be the announcement of the second advent of Christ, and with ten days, uh, within ten days after the two witnesses ascend into heaven, Moses and Elijah, remember they're killed, and uh, their bodies lay in the streets for three and a half days, which I think corresponds with three and a half days of Christ, at least three days of Christ in the grave, and by Gentile reckoning, perhaps three and a half days uh, in the grave, their bodies are not going to be buried. They, they are not going to allow them to be buried. They're going to lay in the street for three to three and a half days, and then before the entire world, they're going to be raised to life and ascend into heaven. Within ten days of their ascension, Christ will come back to the earth. Revelation chapter 8, 9, and the 11th chapter, verse 15, harmonized together, give us that understanding. The baptism of fire is a bloodbath. Uh, it's a, bath, a bloodbath of judgment on all unbelievers at the second advent. And it's divided into uh, baptism of fire against the Jews and then a baptism of fire against the Gentiles. Uh, that is going to occur at that point. So those final three trumpet judgments are going to be uh, brought about during the last three and a half years of tribulation. There are some other judgments that we have not looked at and they are identified as bowls, cups, or vials depending on which translation you have. Uh, the, the actual he Greek term is a drinking cup. But they are identified as vials or drinking vials that are poured out. And there are seven special angels that are used, seven angels of judgment that pour out these vials judgments. Uh, the first angel is identified in uh, Revelation 14, 6-7 and he gives a warning. His job is to present the principle of God's grace before judgment. The second angel in Revelation 14, 8 and has the responsibility to administer judgment to ecumenical religion that will be on the earth during the tribulation. Uh, religion headed up by Satan himself. The third angel in Revelation 14, 9-13 will judge those who, who follow religion and uh, will judge both the system and the individuals that are part of the system. Uh, in the Ten Nation Confederation uh, there is a union of religion and government under the dictator revived Roman Empire and that will be judged. The fourth angel, in Revelation 14, 14 through 16, will be an angel that will bring about military judgment. 
This will be the prologue to the Armageddon campaign that will be uh, underway when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. Uh, It will be a judgment of tremendous slaughter by various armies that are involved and uh, have been authorized by Jesus Christ who is seated with a sharp sickle in his hand and uh, so he is going to release these angels to reap the harvest uh, during this time. The fifth angel in Revelation 14, 17 is also military judgment and this angel is responsible for killing off part of the armies that are going to be involved in the Armageddon campaign. The sixth angel in Revelation 14:18 is another military judgment and all unsaved military personnel are going to be killed. The seventh angel in Revelation 14:19 through 20 those uh, who are about to be killed are fully ripe for judgment and they're overdue for judgment and so this angel moves in to accomplish that. See, by the time they get through and the Armageddon campaign is over, there will only be believers living on the earth. All unbelievers will be killed by the end of the Armageddon campaign. All right, let's look at these vile judgments. Uh, If I can find one of my pages. They're given to us in Revelation chapter 15, uh, which, well, I should say they're in, the, Revelation chapter 16 is introduced in Revelation chapter 15. And in chapter 16 is where we have the final judgments uh, called the vile judgments. And seven angels, we've already talked about are going to bring these seven last plagues. Now these vials are God's judgment of ecumenical religion uh, at its highest peak. The reason that's given for these seven last plagues is is the absolute justice of God and, and the fairness of God source of the seven last plagues is from the temple of the tabernacle that is in heaven. They generate directly from heaven to the earth. That's why we have angels that are administering the the seven last judgments represent the principle that God is giving them one last opportunity to respond in what we identify as evangelism by disaster. I used to tell people when I pastored in child children that I oftentimes was tempted to pray that God would cause a great earthquake to hit that city so that the main street of that town became uh, a a great uh, canyon because I felt like probably the next day that the people would be in church where they ought to be. Uh, interesting a uh, number of years ago I don't know how it stacks up now but a number of years ago the highest attendance per capita wise that had been registered in the United States since the end of World War II was during the uh, 
military blockade, the naval blockade of Cuba, that in that short period of time, church attendance escalated tremendously as there was the threat. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I think we've become more callous and indifferent now. Uh, and I don't know that there was an increase. Uh, it might be interesting to, to check that out if there was some kind of survey made. Uh, if there's any kind of increase during the recent uh, situation. Oh, is that right? Okay. Uh, it, it's always worked that when people get need, they begin to turn back to God. And so this is going to be a time of intense disaster uh, and a hope or an attempt to evangelize through these disasters. Uh, the plagues that are going to occur are similar to the plagues that Moses performed in Egypt. For instance, uh, the first plague... Uh, Moses turned water to blood in uh, Exodus chapter 7 verse 18. Well the second and the third vials also turn water into blood in Revelation 16 verses 3 and 4. The second plague that Moses did uh, in Egypt was that frogs came uh, throughout the land. There were frogs all throughout the land in Exodus chapter 8 verse 2. The sixth vial has demons like frogs operating against the rulers of the earth in Revelation chapter 16 verse 13. Moses' sixth plague in, in Exodus 9-8 was a plague that produced boils and the first vial produces a cancerous type sore of the skin of the religious people uh, in Revelation 16-2. Moses' seventh plague was a plague of hail in Exodus 9-22 and the seventh vial also produces hail in Revelation 16, 17 through 21. Uh, Moses' ninth plague was a plague of darkness in Exodus 10, verse 21. And the fifth vial produces darkness uh, in Revelation 16, 10. So there's some similarity between uh, the things that occurred in the Exodus. Each plague is designed with one purpose in mind, and that is to put maximum pressure upon the people of the earth at the end of the tribulation in order to uh, cause them to respond to need and to have to deal with accepting uh, God's provision or rejecting it. In Revelation 16 then, we have the vile judgments uh, introduced uh, to us uh, uh, means that's a filler and I'm looking for another page so all seven of the vials or drinking goblets or cups as we mentioned before are judgments against religious unbelievers religious unbelievers they're designed for evangelization and uh they are uh, designed to evangelize those that have not received the mark of the beast. If they receive the mark of the beast during the tribulation, it's over for them. No hope for them. But for those that, that resist that, this pressure is designed to get them to respond. The uh, ecumenical or ecclesiastical religious system uh, will reject 
the work of Christ on the cross and uh, so God brings these judgments upon them each one of them containing the wrath of God and each is going to be poured upon the earth and upon those that reject the work of Christ the first vial in Revelation 16 2 and we mentioned it earlier as a skin cancer type thing that is not designed to kill but is designed to make them realize that they're close to try that again that they're close to death and try to awaken them to their need to respond to Christ. Uh, Revelation 6.2, it will be the loss of health. The second vial, Revelation 16.3, is the loss of food, uh, food from the sea, and it is designed to make them realize they need something besides food uh, and materialistic things for life. The third vial in Revelation 16.4-7 will be a loss of fresh water. An angel is going that... that uh, has been appointed to protect the water supply and the fact that all people drink water and are sustained by the water uh, is evidenced in this loss of fresh water. The last four of the vile uh, plagues occur during the very end of the tribulation. Apparently within the last six weeks to two months of the three and a half year period. The fourth vial, the first of those then, is in Revelation 16, 8, and 9. It is uh, a weather catastrophe. There is going to be extreme heat for a short period of time. Finally we did it. We burned up the ozone layer and the greenhouse effect took place. Uh, it, however, uh, will be used to, to bring pressure and to cause them to respond to evangelization. The fifth vial uh, in 16, 10, and 11 is a judgment by epidemic. There is going to be darkness. There's going to be sores. There's going to be pain. Uh, and primarily that's going to be focused on Rome and on the revived Roman Empire. That part of the world is going to experience some tremendous darkness when it's supposed to be dead. And there's going to be some military maneuvers that are going to be occurring then, and they need the light. <laughs> and uh, they're going to be at a disadvantage because uh, Russia is going to move down from the north uh, into Egypt uh, during that period of time and uh, it's only when that plague of, of darkness is removed that they finally are able to begin to move into position and get ready for the Armageddon campaign. The sixth vial uh, is in Re Revelation 16, 12 through 16 and uh, it is a time of military disaster as it prepares the way for the kings of the east the Oriental nations and brings military forces to a place for their slaughter at the second advent. The seventh vial is against the leadership of this ecumenical religion. Uh, there are four types of judgments in Revelation 16, 17 through 21. In the 18th verse, natural disturbances. In the 19th verse, judgment of cities. In the 20th verse, some uh, topographical uh, upheavals that are going to occur and in the 21st verse some tremendous hailstones. Uh, though all this pressure has been placed upon them uh, there will still uh, be a rejection of God not only a rejection of God but a cursing uh, of God and what he is doing uh, at that particular time. The stage then, as these 
vile judgments are poured out is set for the Battle of Armageddon. Really what we ought, ought not to call the Battle of Armageddon, but the Armageddon campaign because there are really four battles that uh, are identified as going to occur uh, in the Armageddon campaign. Um, there's three different directions that I want us to look at that. How are we doing time-wise? Not good enough. See if I can kick it up into one higher speed. Uh, no, we'll just we'll just hit what we what we can hit. We we want to look at the different types of activity as it relates to the Armageddon campaign: divine activity, human activity, and demonic activity as it is going to occur. As I said, there are four battles in this campaign. And uh, the uh, culmination of the fighting will occur in the valley of Isdravian before the hills of Megiddo, uh, which is a place that Napoleon once stood and looked over. It's a valley 176 miles long and 50 miles wide. And Napoleon once looked over that area and he said all the armies of the world could maneuver in battle in this valley. And they're going to. Three of the battles that are going to occur is first the battle of Jehoshaphat, then the battle of uh, Adamia, and the valley of Isdrayan, and then a final attempt upon Jerusalem itself. Apparently the angels of judgment are responsible for killing off some of these armies we identified earlier in, in the judgment that they're going to, one of the military disasters in the seven vials is the destruction of some of the armies. Uh, and so the, the angels of judgment that with the vile judgments are going to be involved in killing off some of these armies before Jesus Christ returns. In Revelation chapter 14 verses 14 through 20 uh, document that for us. The fourth battle is the siege of Jerusalem itself that we mentioned and uh, it will be interrupted or terminated by the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and that's covered in Zechariah chapter 12 and chapter 14 and in Revelation chapter 19 verses 11 through 21. The armies that come with the Lord from heaven don't do any fighting. Uh, Revelation chapter 19 verse 14 we're going to be in that army we're not going to do any fighting uh, we are described as being white and clean uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to do all the slaying himself with a, with a sword out of his mouth uh, he is going to uh, end the battle of Armageddon or the, the uh, campaign of Armageddon and so he alone will do the fighting according to Revelation 19 verse 13 and verse 21 the slaughter that is going to occur is described in Revelation 14.20. It's also recorded in Ezekiel 39 verse 12, in Zechariah chapter 14 verse 3, and in Isaiah chapter 24 verses 2 through 6. So you have to get the tape to get all the documentation. Many of the passages uh, of Scripture indicate that Christ will be destroyed by atomic uh, fission or by disintegration. Isaiah chapter 24 verses 19 and 20, Isaiah 34 4, Isaiah 34 9, Ezekiel 38 19 through 22, Matthew 24 21, 
uh, Matthew 24, 29, Revelation 18, 18, uh, 18, 8, all identify what's going to occur and that uh, interprets by our terminology today to uh, atomic fission or disintegration. That will be followed then by the supper of the great God uh, which is going to be the feeding of the fowls uh, of the air, the vultures, uh, in which they're going to feed upon the dead bodies from Armageddon. And that's covered in Revelation 19, verses 17 and 18. Uh, and we indicated that in the uh, late 60s or early 70s, uh, the vultures in Israel that normally laid one egg a year and hatched out one little one a year suddenly begin to lay three eggs a year. And that process is still going on. Uh, biologists are baffled by it. Uh, theologians are excited about it. That's divine activity. Let's look at the demonic activity during the Armageddon prologue. Bible background for this is found in Revelation 16, verses 13 through 16. Satan is behind, of course, the activity in the tribulation and uh, certainly is the key figure. The background for the Armageddon uh, campaign is the anti-Semitism that we've already talked about in Revelation 12, verse 17, and Satan's anger with Israel. Uh, there are three sources that are trying to get rid of the Jews. Satan, the dictator of the revived Roman Empire, and the dictator of Palestine, or Israel. All three of those are trying to get rid of the Jews during uh, this last three and a half year period of the tribulation. These two dictators then, the dictator of, of Israel and the dictator of the revived Roman Empire uh, are controlled by Satan and are indwelt by demons. The dictator of, of the revived Roman Empire being said to be indwelt by Satan uh, himself at times. Demons are sent out of the mouth by Satan uh, of the dictator of the revived Roman Empire and the dictator of uh, Israel, the false prophet, uh, to gather them to battle. And uh, these, the responsibility of these demons is to persuade the rulers to follow the satanic policies that have been established. This gathering of the nations, all of the nations in the land, is the basis then for the destruction of these armies at Armageddon. The demons enable these dictators to work miracles so they'll have tremendous credibility and impress people. Uh, the less people think, of course, the more they're impressed by what they do not understand, and so they'll use the phenomena of miracle performance uh, to gather them in. The prophecy of Armageddon is given in Revelation chapter 7, uh, verse 4. Human activity is the chief activity, the primary activity that is dealt with that we want to examine tonight, and... Uh, Daniel chapter 11 uh, verses 36 through 45 are the key passages that deal with the human activity during uh, the Armageddon prologue. We have four kings identified in Daniel 11. The king of the north, the king of the south, the king of the east, and the king of the west. We've identified the king of the west as being the dictator of the revived Roman Empire. We've identified the king of the north as being the Russian uh, leader, the king of the south as being the Arabic uh, nations, the king of the east as being the uh, Chinese or Oriental nations. 
a pan-Oriental group and a pan-Arabic group of these Orientals uh, banded together, and the Arabics banded together in in a oneness against Israel. All of these focused in against Israel. Now the king of the north, to begin with, wants to get to Africa because of the gold and the silver uh, and the treasures that are in Africa. Daniel chapter 11 verse 43 talks about this and, and uh, you'll need to, to examine that passage, Daniel 11, 36 to 45. Uh, I'm just going to summarize the things that occur. The king of the north will choose two different routes to get to Africa. Uh, the navy will take, he, he'll take the fleet down the water route through to Africa and then he will take a land route going across the western end of Turkey into Assyria and into Israel. I think the ground work has been laid for that. And is, we're seeing it laid right now uh, with Russia. Uh, with Iraq being reduced from its superpower in, among the Arabic, Syri uh, Syria now being elevated to the highest role along with Iran, uh, the, the work is being set up. Of course, Turkey stands in the way, and uh, they will uh, have to experience the wrath of uh, the king of the north as he moves down. Daniel chapter 11, verse 4, talks about this route across the western end of Turkey into Syria and into Israel. The, um, that, that'll be a trip he's taking down to get, remember, to Africa. And he's going to make a quick trip down through Israel. The king of the north is going to uh, organize two attacks. Uh, some strategical penetration uh, toward the heart of Africa and some strategic, uh, strategical uh, envelopment along the Mediterranean coast of Africa. He'll conquer everything from the Black Sea to northern Africa. King of the north, Russia. King of the North will choose the time to do this when the fifth vial, that of darkness, is being poured out upon the revived Roman Empire. <laughs> the revived Roman Empire is in darkness when everybody else has got daylight. And so he's going to choose that time to make his attack. In Daniel chapter 11, verse 44, the revived Roman Empire challenged the North Fleet, probably in Haifa, uh, to cut off their supply line. We find the term tidings out of the north uh, to the king, uh, to the north of the king of the north at this time. Uh, so it's not meaning tidings out of Russia. The king of the north is going to be down in Africa and he's going to receive tidings out of his position of north. And uh, then tidings out of the east could be the uh, Arabs or the kings of the east that are coming into Palestine uh, and he's going to move back up. So he will be down in Africa. He'll also have troops up in, in uh, uh, Russia, and he will move in both directions as he tries to converge in Israel coming back and the kings of the east coming into Israel, uh, the king of the south, uh, the Arabs moving into Israel, and the king of the west moving in as well. The kings of the east... Uh, have already moved into to, to the land of Edom, according to Revelation 16:12. The Euphrates River's got to dry up for them to get there, and that was a perplexing problem 
up until the Aswan Dam was built. And after the Aswan Dam was built, it became no problem for they can pull a lever and shut the water off and the river will dry up and they can go through. Of course, uh, if our drought continues and they have one like we have, well, they, there's other ways of doing it. But they're going to go across the dried up river Euphrates and uh, the Aswan Dam has already set the, the mechanism in order from a human viewpoint to be able to do that and God could do it any way he chooses to do it. Uh, so they'll come across that way and they will have moved into Edom in vial 6, the pouring out of vial 6. The king of the south will attack Israel simultaneously with the king of the north. Initial attack in Daniel 11.40 and the king of the south is the Arabic block of nations. The king of the west then, when the darkness is removed, will, will try to cut off the navy uh, of the king of the north and will move into the valley of Isdrillion from the Mediterranean, that valley of Isdrillion called Armageddon. He will try to stop the king of the north, uh, who is coming up from Africa, and uh, of course he does that initially as part of his alliance with the king of, of Israel, or the uh, dictator of Israel, who established that alliance with him. So the king of the west is going to try to defend uh, Israel. He's going to be converging uh, to try to cut off uh, the king of the north or the Russians as they move back up. So there will really be three troop concentrations. The valley of Jehoshaphat, which is near Jerusalem, and the Arabs from the south, and the king from the north that's on his way back from Africa will be concentrated there. Idumea will be the area in which the kings of the east move in, the orientals. Israelian or Armageddon will be where the king of the west will move in. So uh, in addition to that you have some of the troops of Russia having already been cut off by uh, the king of the west. The material, Bible material in this, as I said for this, is in Daniel chapter 11 uh, beginning with verse 36 and going through verse 45 and uh, I want to just hit a few high spots in that so that I can try to tie this together. In verse 36 it talks about the king and the king that's mentioned there is the Jewish dictator. The Jewish dictator. Marvelous things that are mentioned there are fantastic things, miraculous things. Uh, the, the term exalt or magnify God is a reference to the Antichrist. Uh, God of gods is the Lord Jesus Christ and the, the term indignation in verse 36 refers to tribulation uh, that the tribulation will run its course in verse 37 the reference to God of our father God of his fathers is a reference to Jesus Christ this is the dictator uh, the Jewish dictator and uh, Jesus Christ is the founder of course of the Jewish race and Jesus Christ is the root and the branch the root, he founded the Jewish race, he's the branch, the, offspring, the uh, offspring of David who will deliver them and rule over them. And uh, as you read down through that passage then, uh, you will uh, find the, the stage uh, props for that which I have very quickly uh, summarized for you. Let me just say a couple things about religion in the tribulation then. And uh, remember, it's going to be one of the highest times of religion in all the world. 
a distinction between religion and Christianity. Religion is from Satan. Religion is a system by which, which man tries to earn uh, his approval of God. So uh, Christianity is a means whereby man recognizes his own inability and throws himself upon the mercy of God and appropriates God's grace. Uh, Satan is the father of all religious efforts. And uh, he will have a heyday during the tribulational period. And in the uh, Revelation account, you'll uh, find in the, the symbolisms that I gave out to you, uh, hopefully some help in dealing with that. The harlot uh, that is described there is the false religion. Uh, the word Babylon uh, is used in reference to her. And remember, it's headed up out of a marriage in the Roman government. <laughs> The, the Catholic Church uh, that is is headed by the dictator of the revived Roman Empire during the tribulational period and uh, has its seat and its authority there and it's going to uh, really become manifest and the world is going to mourn when it falls but there is going to be a fall of uh, this religious uh, ecumenical religious effort and it's covered uh, for us in the latter chapters uh, of the book of Revelation. The uh, 17th chapter uh, deals uh, with it uh, to a degree. You have uh, the, uh, the emphasis of an international scope of religion uh, in Revelation chapter 17 verse 12. Tremendous wealth uh, financial holdings that are identified uh, in Revelation 18.13 and uh, the term Babylon refers to the uh, religion of the tribulation uh, period of time. There uh, is going to be an adherence of up to 90% of the nations of the earth involved in that ecumenical religion. Uh, during the tribulation. Uh, there are some who speculate by, by looking at some of the things that are given there that, that it may even reach uh, 100% of nations uh, that it will at least give lip service uh, to this false religion. And uh, it's going to be attractive because the dictator of the revived Roman Empire is going to be an outstanding personality and, and with leadership ability. And then the image that's going to be set up is going to be able to perform uh, miracles and then to buy or sell they have to be part of that religion and so uh, the economic pressure that is going to come to bear upon that. As the battle of Armageddon and the siege against Jerusalem is at its, at its peak, the Lord Jesus Christ comes back to the earth in what we call the second advent. He lands atop the Mount of Olives just outside Jerusalem and he stops the siege. He destroys all unbelievers from the earth he removes the dictator of the revived Roman Empire and the false prophet, casts them into the lake of fire. All unbelievers are killed and there are only believers standing when the battle is over. It is apparently at that point that all the fallen angels that have been on the earth are removed from the earth and apparent that the church is instrumental in removing them one-on-one, -on -one, uh, casting them into the lake of fire. The events that follow then uh, are dealt with very quickly uh, in the latter uh, chapters of Revelation chapter 20. Uh, 
and uh, 21 and 22 uh, as they uh, kind of uh, tie up the loose ends. You need to get in some Old Testament books though to get some other details uh, about what's going to occur. The millennium is dealt with extensively uh, in the Old Testament, uh, in Isaiah, in uh, Zechariah, in Ezekiel. Uh, we have uh, passages uh, that deal uh, with the uh, millennial reign of Christ. When Christ stops the battle, there is a period of some 75 days uh, that are not accounted for in detail except perhaps by phrases where the, the great supper of the God uh, talking about the, the eating of the carcasses by the vultures uh, that's going to occur. Uh, blood is going to be uh, so deep it's described as as deep as a horse's bridle and uh, uh, very extensive in length some 200 miles by our English calculations. Whether that is literal, uh, I do not know. Uh, it seems to be literal by the uh, by the terminology that's that's set forth. Then why do you question it? Uh, because of the depth of the blood <laughs> and the length of it. Uh, After all the stuff you've read, you believe that, but you question the depth and the length. I uh, yeah, if he can open the waters of the Red Sea and all that. Yeah, thank you. Uh, for for putting me in my place, the son-in-laws can do that. the The terminology, because it is, there, there's a definite length given, gives credence to taking it literal. Uh, and yet, in some uh, Jewish writings, uh, there is the the idiom use of a, the, the height of a horse's bridle. And so whether that idiom was being incorporated into that uh, leads to my uh, not being dogmatic about it because that term, uh, the height of a horse's bridle, is used in some Jewish literature as an idiom. But the length isn't? The length is not used as an idiom. Not, not in that coupling. The, um, the, four the, the four final feasts excuse me, the three final feasts of Israel are going to be fulfilled with the landing of Christ on the top of the Mount of Olives and the stopping of the Battle of Armageddon and the establishment of his millennial kingdom. Uh, I believe I indicated earlier on in our first or second week that the seven feasts of Israel were a prophetic panoramic view of teaching the Jews the, the character and work of the coming Messiah. And then in the first Advent, he fulfilled four of those. On the day the Paschal Lamb was to be slain, he became the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. The very hour, three o'clock in the afternoon, when the Passover lambs were being slain, he was slain on the 14th day of the month of Abed. He fulfilled Passover to the letter. He fulfilled the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which denoted God's provision and fellowship. And as a result of his, of his death, we are able to be entered into oneness with Christ and fellowship or commune with God. He fulfilled the Feast of First Fruits in that on the day of the Feast of First Fruits, Sunday, uh, during the, the Holy Week, he came out of the grave victoriously alive and became the first fruits of those that slept 
and gave us assurance of our resurrection as well. He fulfilled the Feast of Pentecost which marked the end of the Jewish harvest by sending the Holy Spirit on that day to begin to end the Jewish time of administration and to begin the Jewish uh, the, the church age. When he returns, there are three, three feasts that have not yet been fulfilled. The Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Trumpets is the regathering of the Jews. It was done annually at the end of summer. But it spoke prophetically of his regathering them out of every nation under heaven at his return. And he will do that. The Feast of Atonement follows the Feast of Trumpets by five days. It is, excuse me, by ten days. It is a, uh, a time in which he will remove the curse from the earth. All the curse of sin will be removed except for death. Death will remain. Longevity of life, however, will, will occur so that the Bible says if a person dies at the age of 100, it will, have been, it will be commented that he died as an infant. So longevity will, will uh, return. Uh, ferocity in animals will be gone. No longer will they fear man and there will not be any ferociousness or, or attack of one another. The lion and the lamb uh, will lay down beside one another, not together with one in the other's belly. Uh, they'll eat uh, together. So what, there is a vegetarian and you don't kill animals? Uh, the diet's not prescribed in eternity because of the lack of, of animals killing animals there will be an abundance of animals so uh, there will be animal sacrifice they will be killing animals for sacrifice during that time and uh, I the Bible just does not, does not say I would speculate quote speculate that uh, animals will still be on the diet but uh, there will not be an attack of animal upon animal during that period of time the uh, period is going to be begun then with per, in perfect environment with only believers. At the return of Christ, all the Old Testament saints will be raised. Now remember, we were raised at the rapture before the tribulation began, but they weren't. Their age being ended at the return of Christ, and all Old Testament saints will be raised and given glorified bodies. The believers that are still on the earth alive when Christ comes back, and we come back with him, will remain in their natural bodies during the millennium. That's why death will still be a reality. They will continue to propagate. During that, as a result of that propagation, there will be people born, though Christ is ruling from the throne of David over all the earth, and all nations are commanded to come at least once a year to Jerusalem. Some nations are going to be in rebellion and refuse to come as a result of these unbelievers that have come uh, into existence uh, through the propagation of those that have their natural bodies. Satan will be bound. Demons will be gone. It will be an opportunity for the whole world to see and the sociologist <laughs> to thoroughly understand that environment's not man's problem. That regeneration is the only solution to man's problem. At the end of the thousand years, Satan will be released for a short season. He will immediately go up into the Russia, Russian area. It's Gog and Magog. That geographically is Russia today. He will deceive a great host of people there. 
And he will go out and gather others and deceive tremendous people and as numerous as the sands of the sea. And will once again try to overthrow God. He will be defeated. This heaven and this earth will melt with a fervent heat and disappear. The great white throne judgment will be erected. Only unbelievers go before the great white throne judgment. There's no judgment to those that are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. The judgment seat of Christ, the award banquet, will have occurred seven years before. The great white throne judgment, all those that are in Hades will come out. All those that have died as unbelievers, wherever they are, will appear before the great white throne. Their souls have been in torments and they will be brought before the great white throne. They will be evaluated on their good works. Have you lived the perfect life? Have you met the standard of God? And of course, the Bible tells us all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. None judge, none perfect, no, not one. And so, the Lamb's Book of Life will be open to see if their name is there. And where their name was, that space is now blotted out. And they will be thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone. No one who stands before the great white throne of judgment will enter into the kingdom of God. They will be there simply for sentencing. Their decision would have been made while they were yet alive. They'll be thrown in the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, where Satan is at that time, where all the fallen angels are, and they will spend eternity there. A new heaven and a new earth will come into existence. The new earth will not have any sea. It'll just be landmass. The new Jerusalem will be the holy city of God. It will come down and uh, hover above the earth. All the language that speaks about it as a heavenly city speaks about it being in the heavens, in the atmospheric heaven throughout eternity. It's a city some 1,500 miles long, some 1,500 miles high, and some 1,500 miles wide. Cubicle. Jesus Christ will sit upon the throne and he will rule and reign from there and we will rule and reign from there with him. The Jews saved Israel will rule and reign with Christ from, uh, will rule and reign there also. Their role is going to be different than ours. Other nations are going to exist upon the earth and we will live in that perfect environment forever. There's a river that flows through the main street of that new city. Uh, on each side of the river is the tree of life. It bears 12 kinds of fruit each in a different month. The leaves of the trees are said to be for the healing of the nations and uh, are associated directly with the nations in some form or fashion. The gates of the city and of course we've read that there are mighty pearls each gate is a pearl there are 12 foundations of the city the wall is some 281 feet high uh, it is going to be a place that of perfect bliss never again will we remember 
our minds will not be able to to remember the things that happened previously in this life, the scripture says. Also identifies the fact that we will be able to look into the lake of fire and see those who are there. And yet we'll be able to look without any grieving because there'll be no sorrow, there'll be no tears. We'll be looking from the perfect justice position of God into that. Bible doesn't give a great deal about eternity. As a matter of fact, in the original language, the word eternity is only used one time in the Bible. And probably, the, probably the chief reason that we don't have a great deal of detail about it is because we'd all be so excited about it, we'd take that shortcut and go on. Uh, Paul was caught up into the third heaven and saw those things and uh, was given a thorn in the flesh to keep him humble and was told not to write and tell us about those things. But he was so excited about it that he said, I'm torn between two things, to stay here and minister to you or to go and be up there, which is far better to be up there. And there's not a whole lot of believers that I run across that say it's far better to be up there. Now, now that's my conviction, but it's my conviction based upon what Paul says and what some others say. And then my conviction that there's no automobiles there and we can get away from it. You know, but, uh, we don't know a great deal about it, but there are some uh, limited accounts of information that uh, I briefly have summarized for you this evening. Those are the high spots. Do you have any questions that I can answer this evening? The other nations, Gentile nations from Old Testament times and through the tribulation times, and they're going to exist as nations, as national entities. And we are going to rule over them some faithful servants of the Lord during the church age are going to be governors and rulers over these, and others of us are going to have other responsibilities administering or and serving and ruling over these nations. Don't know. Don't know. I imagine about the type of situation that was in Eden. But I only can go by imagine because the Bible doesn't say. But it would seem that there'll be a type a type of Eden Edenic lifestyle at that time. There won't be any sun and there won't be any moon. The city of Jerusalem will have a light and it will be suspended above the earth and it will give light and in that city there will never be any night and the, the sun S-O-N is the light of the city. God's glory itself will be the light of the city and there will be no night. And the gates of the city will never be closed. What about on earth? I can't answer that. <laughs> I uh, I have tried to pursue that, and there's n I've not found a biblical answer, uh, or whether there'll be light, uh, or whether there'll be uh, there won't be any need for light on the earth. The, the 
the New Jerusalem will give that light. But will it rotate so that there may be night on the earth? I can't find it. It just says be no night as it relates to the city. The description that we have is basically the city. And as I was a child and I heard about heaven preached, that wasn't heaven they were preaching. They were preaching about the New Jerusalem. For the description that we have is the New Jerusalem. We don't have a great deal of description about the New Earth. We do know that there won't be any water cycle, that there's not going to be any seas and all of that uh, type of, of circumstance or situation. Uh, but we, we don't know a great deal about it. Now scientists tell us that the Earth has to rotate or gravity and all that stuff would be destroyed. But the Bible cites a couple examples when the rotation of the earth stopped. For God stopped the earth one time for about a day, almost a day, to allow the children of Israel to prevail in battle. And then God moved the earth back on its axis one time in setting the sundial back a ways. And uh, people have scoffed at that, scientists have scoffed at that through the years until they were preparing for the Apollo launch to the moon. And as they were working on that, they were...